Our year-end sale is here. Get 80% off a CI Markets premium subscription for only $99 for the whole year. Get AI-powered forecasts of over 1,600 assets across stocks, ETFs, Forex, commodities, and economics. With 94.7% forecast accuracy, this tool helps traders and investors like you make smarter decisions and plan portfolios better. This promo ends December 31st. Go to completeintel.com slash year end to learn more. That's 80% off CI markets at $99 per year. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Week Ahead. I'm Tony Nash. Today, we're joined by Brent Johnson, Tracy Shukart, and Albert Marco. Uh, as we head into the end of the year, we've got a, a few things we're going to talk about today. In 2024, obviously, we're looking at growth, disinflation, central banks, dollar. We'll talk with Brent about that. With Tracy, we want to talk a little bit about fracking and crude quality uh, and kind of the surge of exports we've had out of the U.S. and Texas uh, lately. And then with Albert, we'll talk geopolitics and we're looking at the Yemen Red Sea shipping risk and kind of what's really happening there and how long it will last. So, guys, thank you very much. I know we're headed into a holiday weekend, so um, so I appreciate you taking the time, um, Brent. And again, thanks for joining us again. So sure. I, I want to start with the Fed because we had this um, this meeting last week uh, where everything's dovish now. Um I honestly don't know what to think about the Fed. Are we higher for longer or not? I saw one bank, it's a European bank, so you know that kind of helps you to understand, but saying that we'll have 275 basis points of cuts in the first half of the year. Um, so it seems ridiculous, but I think nobody really knows if we're going to have five cuts in 24 or two cuts or no cuts or you know whatever. So, and Bostic was out earlier this week saying that um, we'll have two cuts, but um, we have other Fed presidents saying other things. So, you know, I, I think we're we're in this mode where I, I don't even think the Fed guys are aligned on what they do. So I guess what I'm confused by is why is there so much hope for cuts when we're told that growth is fine? We're told that inflation is fine. We're told that re retail sales are fine. PCE in Q3 was just adjusted to 2%. So PCE is fine. So we're at a 5.5% Fed rate and markets are flying. So why the urgency now? And I put this tweet up on uh, on the screen, uh, somebody, Deep Sale Capital, I don't know who that is, but uh, they basically boiled this question down uh, and I wanted to prep you for this. So, so why the urgency now, Brett? Well, it's a very good question. And to be honest, I'm really not sure myself. Uh, it was a very fast change of of uh, tone from Powell. You know, on late November, December, early December, he was higher for longer. And two weeks later, you know, he says we're, you know, we're considering cutting rates, basically, and didn't push back when people kind of challenged him on it. So there, there's clearly something going on. I'm not quite sure what it is. Um, I, I have a couple theories. I, th I think the most prominent theory right now is that it's political, right? They don't want to, they don't want to have a recession going into a presidential election. And they, you know, 
if we had a big recession right in front of it, that could be bad for Biden and that could be seen as a political move or vice versa. You know, there's other people on the other side are saying if, if he gooses the economy going into the election, that's political, too. But I, I think that could be part of it. I think the other part of it is that potentially um, they have access to information or they see some things coming that the rest of the market doesn't. And if they are going to be cutting after so recently saying that's higher for longer, they must see some bad things on the horizon that nobody else sees or the rest of us don't see. And one thing I would say is that's, you know, I think the market has reacted correctly directionally to the news, but I think the magnitude of the moves have gotten way ahead of themselves. So, you know, equities rallying on a dovish pivot from the Fed makes total sense. Um, and and, and this, this goes all the way back to the, the previous Fed meeting because they were somewhat dovish in that meeting as well. And, you know, markets have gone straight up for six weeks. Yesterday was the first down, significant down day in a really long time. And so to me, everything is kind of priced to perfection right now. And we just live in a very imperfect world. So I agree with the direction. I disagree with the magnitude. And for me, it's kind of easy to, to decide what to do right now. And that's to do nothing and to, if anything, hedge the downside. Because to me, it's all everything's priced in. Yep. Um, to the upside already. Um, the other thing I would say is that some of the criticism of the Fed is warranted, but some of it is not. And it, it, the thing is, regardless of what the Fed does, they're going to get criticized. Some people have, there's a whole industry that has been created that, and designed to criticize the Fed, regardless of what they say. And so if, let, let's say they do see some slowdown in the economy coming. I mean, at the end of the day, the Fed wants to slow the economy. That was the whole point of the rate hikes to begin with. That is the way they thought that they could tame inflation. And so while but they they want while they want to slow the economy, they don't want to crash the economy. They don't want to have a global financial crisis that they cannot control. And so if you take that into effect and you consider how far they went in such a short period of time from zero to five and a half percent. And now let's say that they see some success, they think the economy is going to start to slow, but they don't want to crash the economy, then it does actually make sense to start cutting before you get to the 2%, right? I mean, it, it, and so, you know, he even said that in his press conference, you know, if we don't start cutting before we get to 2%, then we have, then we risk going past 2% and getting into severe deflation, which they don't want severe deflation. So, you know, if you think about it, like landing a plane, you don't want to land the plane going full speed. You do kind of want to come in on a kind of a smooth path. And so maybe there's some of that going on as well. And, and, and the final thing I'd say just on this is that, you know, the, the people at the Fed are not stupid. Now, they may be misguided. They may be out of touch. They may be arrogant, but they're not stupid people. And so if they are, if they are now signaling that, you know, no more hikes and probably cuts, there's probably a reason for that. And and I think people should take that into account when they're, you know, buying the all-time highs and all these assets. Oh, yeah. So go ahead, Tracy. I had a question, right? Do you see a scenario yeah. which we're going into an election year? Obviously, there's a lot of political things going on. Nobody wants the recession heading into to. Uh, to, to this next election. But do you see a scenario of which we have Fed cutting, 
you have Yellen still issuing bonds and obviously fiscal spending is not going to stop. So do you see a, a situation where this could reignite inflation? Yeah, potentially. Uh, it, it, it all depends on why they why they are now moving to cuts, right? If they are moving to cuts because they are trying to um, you know, combat this deflation that they see on the horizon, then it just depends. Maybe if if the deflationary forces outweigh the, the the cuts that they're doing, then you can still get deflation. But if those deflationary forces don't show up and they start easing again, it definitely risks the possibility of a further acceleration of inflation. And I think that's the last thing that Powell wants, which is why I kind of feel like there must be some reason that he's risking inflation reaccelerating. And, you know, I wish I knew what it was. I don't. But uh, but it, it's a very good question. And and that that's what's got me thinking the most is because he did. So, nobody thought he would go to five and a half percent in you know 12 months, but he did it. And nobody thought that he could do it without crashing the markets, but he did it. Yep. Um, and so. And, and I think the reason that he did that is he didn't want to be another Arthur Burns. I think I think his legacy is extremely important. He's already got all the money in the world. You know, he, he doesn't need any more money. He, he, the only thing he has to protect at this point is his reputation. And I don't th and I think that's a big thing for him. So for him to to risk inflation reaccelerating, I think he must see something that uh, that perhaps the rest of the market doesn't see. Yeah, before Albert jumps in here, I want to say a couple things. Uh, first, um, I agree with you that although I mock the Fed on occasion, I actually think they've done a really good job of kind of getting us into this zone of acceptability. It's taken longer than a lot of people wanted to, but the magnitude of their actions was actually really fast. So I, I think they could have hugely miscalculated uh, and actually don't think they did terribly. So because, you know, these are these are broad policy, uh, you know, decisions they're making. And so, you know, you don't really know where it's going to hit. And they actually, I think, did a really good job, um, despite a lot of their kind of uh, personal defects or whatever. Like you say, they are smart and they did a pretty good job of, of landing, landing us where we are. I do think, though, I hear you say uh, the election year, but it is pretty normal to hike in an election year. Right. If we look historically like it's. It's not a completely abnormal thing. Of course, we didn't see that in 2020 because we had COVID, right? But it's it's not abnormal to hike or for the Fed to adjust monetary policy in an election year. Is that right? I, I don't think it's I don't think no, I think you're correct. I don't think it's abnormal. I just think we live in sort of abnormal times where everything is managed now. And you know, for the last from you know, let's call it 1980 to 2020, we lived in a world that was globalizing and getting closer and working closer together. And for the last four years, we're we're we we're now in a world that is fracturing and supply chains are not getting more efficient; they're becoming less efficient. Yep. And right. you know, we've got geopolitical issues uh, that we didn't have the whole time back then. And so, I just feel like, and and as a result, and and the fact that the debts have gotten so big everywhere. Um, and this is what I don't think a lot of people realize that there's a lot of people out there who 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 think that inflation is here to stay. And, you know, it's just, it's a, the 2020 was a game changer and the government's response um, ensures that we're always going to have inflation. Listen, I, I can't say that that's not true. Maybe we will have inflation going forward. But with the type of system that we have in a debt based monetary system, you always risk deflationary shocks. 
Because if, if the economy is not moving and money is not circulating, you will get defaults. And when defaults happen, there's always the risk that it becomes contagious and it you know jumps from one place to the other. Yep. I want to talk so about deflationary shocks yeah, yeah. Um, in a second. Albert, what, what have you okay. got? I mean, I, I agree with uh, Brent, you know, 80, 90 percent of what he says, is, you know, pretty much correct. But, you know, going I'm, I'm one of those guys that I like to look at who's in charge and 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 what have they done in the past? And for me, you know, <clears throat> Yellen's been doing the exact same playbook as she did in 20. 2017, where she took the VIX to 9.7%. She had 12 weeks. I looked at the chart. There was 12 weeks of up markets at that time. It was crazy, right? Uh, Trump at that point with Mnuchin ousted her. I mean, they they, they just got rid of. They didn't they didn't re um, re uh, appoint her for the position. So that was done. She was done at that point. But the biggest thing that we should learn this year is, you know, the Fed wants inflation. You know, the reserve currency guys don't do debt jubilee, so they're using inflation to do whatever soft landing plans that they have in the mix, you know, to cut corners off your currency. You know, they had multiple chances to cut inflation all of last year in which they emphatically passed each, each time, you know, now we can debate whether it's economic problems on the horizon um, or, uh, you know, political, you know, political strategy, you know, by certain members of the fed and the treasury, that's, that's something else, but I mean, for me, you know, U.S. stocks love 1% GDP growth, which, you know, by definition means 65% of you know, the rest of America is already in a recession. I mean, nobody wants to discuss those things. And but, right. you know, going into an election year, we're definitely going to we're definitely going to hear more about it. I just don't see, you know, inflation easing up. Uh, I've talked to quite a few people that are, you know, connected up into the Fed and they're they're looking at inflation and starting to worry once again. You know, and I don't, I don't, you know, so, so cutting these rates is a dangerous, cutting rates is a very dangerous game with inflation still a problem, in my opinion. Okay. Well, and I, I, let me, let, let me, can I just, yeah. just follow up really quickly? And that is yeah. the other thing I, I, again, I think the markets have reacted correctly directionally, but just the magnitude is way too big because you, you got to remember mm -hmm. these dot plots. It, it's not a, it's not a, uh, it's just what each person thinks at that time. And they can change their mind. It's not a unanimous thing. They don't all agree on the dots. And, you know, again, it is true that if you don't want to crash into 2% and you want to glide into 2%, then you probably want to start cutting as you get closer to it. But if we if if we don't see continued movement towards 2% inflation, we're not going to get all these cuts. The all the in other words, all these cuts are not guaranteed, and that's where I think the the market has just gotten way ahead of themselves. And I think that while they haven't necessarily misinterpreted the Fed, I think they have sort of misinterpreted the Fed's intention to not let inflation just totally run away again. Now, again, I 
It doesn't mean that that won't happen. It doesn't mean it won't get away away from them. But I don't think that they have just all just pivoted and said, you know, we're cutting rates no matter what, you know, inflation be damned and we'll just deal with the consequences. I think they're trying to get the soft landing is what they're trying to do. Oh, without question. They've, they've said that over and over and over again for two years. There's no question they're trying to do that. I think I think the magnitude of this mood, this is a question for you, Brent, is that you think a lot of it's to do with just the liquidity of the market in this time? I mean, right now it's the holidays. Nobody's really there. You know, things can move well, quickly. I, I, I think it's that, but it's also, you know, again, directionally, I think it makes sense, but the dollar has sold off a lot. And as the dollar sells off, that provides liquidity to the whole world. And that's why you've seen financial conditions ease so much. Um, you know, if, if and part of it is also that everybody's just front running the Fed. They're not front running the ECB. They're not front running the other central <laughs> banks. And, and, and the idea that the Europe, which is already basically in a recession, is going to out hawk the Fed over the next year, to me, just doesn't make a lot of sense. And so, you know, I, if we get a bunch of cuts, then, you know, what the dollar has done and what the what the equities have done makes sense. But again, the, these these are all priced in, but they're not guaranteed. And we could very well be in a situation where Europe is cutting aggressively in order to fight their recession, in which case the dollar probably rises versus the euro. And so, you know, again, I think, I think, I think 2024 is going to be much more challenging than 2023. And in fact, I think 2024 could look a lot like 2022. I think we could have a lot of volatility in the first half of the year. And then, you know, as we go in towards the you know, second half of the year and the, the election, things perhaps calm down a little bit. But yep. I think the first six months are going to be very volatile. Yeah. One of the things that I whenever we talk about the Fed and kind of what their, you know, the, the rate intentions are is, you know, Powell and the Fed have said they want to normalize rates. So we had ZERP and NERP and all this other stuff. And five and a half percent, to be honest, is not historically is not a high rate. No. So if we're normalizing rates, if we see cuts coming, what is that normal rate? Is it two and a half? I mean, we don't really know the answer to this, but you know, we don't have, let's say, the demographic issue that Japan has, where they have to have NERP to, to make up for productivity, right? We don't have the demographic issue that Europe has, um, where they have to have low interest rates to make up for a lack of productivity. Um, and so, and you know. Similar argument could be said for Korea, China, at least, you know, in the next year or so. So um, so five and a half percent, I hear people act like these interest rates are extremely high, but really from a historical perspective, are they? Well, they're, they're not high from a historical perspective, but what's different from previous times in history where they were this level is the level of debt and the level of debt that was taken on at very low rates. And so what I mean by that is there's a lot of debt that let's just say that was issued sometime in the last 10 years, five to 10 years. And it was issued when rates were, you know, zero to one and a half percent. And now that they're getting reset with interest rates at five and a half percent, perhaps their car payment is going, I'm just making something up, or their mortgage, you know, goes up from a $500 payment to an $1,800 payment or mm -hmm. whatever it is. And right. so, you know, and, and the, the speed with which rates went up and the speed and the magnitude of the difference of where the debt was initially taken on and where it's being rolled, I think is much different than in previous points in history 
where interest rates are at these same levels. Right. Okay, that's fair. I want to before we get into the next. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump up and turn the, these these oh, shades sure. down. Okay. The, the sun is still coming right in my house. <laughs> okay, that's something they don't see in Nebraska very often. The sun. That's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, uh, Brent, while you're doing that, I, I want to ask a question about Japan. Okay, we've had all sorts of discussion about the Bank of Japan and them potentially tightening. Uh, taking on different tightening activities. But why would the BOJ tighten if we have a Fed that's loosening? Because that effectively makes them uncompetitive in terms of exports. We'd see the yen jump dramatically in value, right? Um, from an export perspective, you know, their competitors are Taiwan, Korea, and China, right? And those guys are not putting on, you know, tighter. They're not tightening at all. So it doesn't make sense to me that Japan would start tightening right now. Does that does that make sense to you? Uh, I mean, I, I hear the chatter every day, but I can't quite put it together why they would start doing that. Well, I, th I think part of the reason that they were doing it was the currency fell 30% in two years, which that's an absolutely enormous move for a major currency. It's not totally unheard of for an emerging market currency, but for the let's call it the second or third biggest currency in the world. That's a massive move. Mm -hmm. And then for the first time in literally decades, they were starting to get inflationary pressures in, in Japan. And so I think there was some pressure. The currency just kept falling, starting to get inflationary pressures. I think there was some political pressure internally to get off of zero and get somewhat. I mean, again, if you even go to half a percent, that's nowhere near normalization, but that's a big move for, for Japan. So I think that is part of it. But but I agree with you, Tony, is that they, they can't really strengthen their currency a lot. Um, if, if they raise rates too much, their entire banking system comes under pressure because you know, their banks, their pension funds, their endowments, all these different uh, local, uh, uh, you know, the insurance companies, they own, you know, trillions of dollars of zero and negative yielding JGBs. Yeah. They, they would face the same thing. They would potentially face the same thing in Japan that the U.S. banks faced last March. Yep. Rates go up. The bonds fall if the banks then have to start liquidating those bonds, those JGBs that are now completely underwater. You know they could have so so they they cannot out hawk. Um, they can out hawk the Fed or some other on on a short term relative basis, but they are not going to get to a point where their interest rates are higher than these other central banks because it would just it would it would, it would decimate their economy. We have BTFP yeah. to the yeah. tenth power yeah. or something yeah. like that. Right. So exactly. Exactly. Okay, so I want to take a look, and all of you guys kind of jump in here. Um, but Brent, you say that 2024 is priced to perfection. So what do you see as the biggest potential downside risks? And I'll name a few, but let me just name a few things. So Fed miscalculation, unexpectedly strong dollar, which you mentioned in a tweet, I don't know, last week or something, U.S. commercial real estate, U.S. election-related volatility, and by that I mean fiscal overspending, political overreaction, that sort of thing. Um, Bank of Japan changing really anything. China real estate, CCP miscalculation, German deindustrialization, Middle East geopolitical risk, oil prices. Like, you know, there's a lot out there that can- All that, all that stuff. All, all, all of that stuff is, and that's the thing is, I don't know what, what it's going to be. I just know that there's all these potential things that you just rattled off. I mean, there's a couple dozen right there. 
And yet the markets are priced as if, you know, everything's beautiful and there's no potential problems on the horizon. And, and you know, that markets do, they climb, they climb a wall of worry. And, I, and I'm not saying we're going to have a collapse next year. I'm just saying that everything is kind of priced as if all these cuts are for sure, as if Europe's not going to start cutting rates, as, as if there's not going to be any problems in China or Japan, and as if, you know, geopolitics is all going to just take us, you know, take a rest and have no more blowups. Yep. And I just don't think that's the world we live in anymore. And and I think it's more likely than not that we're going to have some kind of a, a an outbreak of volatility. Now, whether that takes place in, you know, the Middle East, which I think Albert's going to talk about, whether it takes place in Japan because they're messing around with their interest rates, whether it happens in the U.S. due to commercial real estate. I'm not smart enough to know that. I just what I do know is assets are all the way back to where they were two years ago. They're back at their highs. Um, volatility is as, almost as low as it's been, not quite as low as uh, what, what uh, uh, Albert was talking about with Yellen five or six years ago, but, but very low historically. And, you know, it, for, history has taught me when everybody is doing the same thing, that's about the time that they're going to get hit upside the head. Yep. And, you know, to me, it just makes sense to be prudent right now. I mean, you can, again, this, this is not advice, but I'm just going to, just as an example, um, right now, Basically, every every asset class is within 10% of where it was January 1st, 2022. And the VIX is very low. And so, and we've now we've got interest rates at five and a half percent. We've got geopolitical problems, all these things that you mentioned. You can buy a put on the SP 500 that is like 1% out of the money through June. So six months duration, 1% out of the money. And it will cost you like 2% of your portfolio. So let's pretend that I'm wrong. There's no volatility in the first half of the year and markets rip another 15, 16%. Okay, so now you're up 13 while everybody else is up 15 or 16. That's not horrible, right? You, you still made money. But if we do get some volatility and you know we don't have this perfect market that everybody seems to think we're going to get, and we have a repeat of 2020, the first half of 2022 and 2024, and you know equities are down 10, 15, 20%. Now you're down one or two. I mean, that's to me, that's a pretty good risk reward. Mm -hmm. And so with, with assets the way they are right now, I'm much more inclined to buy protection than to buy than to put on leverage. Great. Tracy, of those things that I mentioned, what are you or, or other things, what are you looking at as risks for 24? I think commercial real estate is definitely a risk. How that kind of pans out in the market and does that cause a contagion in other areas? And I think that's, I mean, I think everybody kind of sees that right now. I mean, it's not, you know, that that's kind of been an ongoing saga, but how that plays out will be very interesting. And will the Treasury or the Fed have to get involved again, as they did with, you know, uh, in March with SPV bank failing, right? Are they going to, are they going to let the commercial real estate uh, market fail entirely or these banks that are backing the loans, I should say. Um, so I think that's definitely something to watch out for. Um, you know, I, I, but I think that's a freight train. Everybody's kind of already watching to be honest. And I do think that, you know, if, the government or the Federal Reserve kind of has to get involved and on the banking side of the issue. They definitely will. Um, but again, you know, does that cause a contagion in, in other markets? We'll have to see. Yeah.
Yeah, I just saw a story. Uh, I mean, this is pretty common every day. Uh, some uh, building in LA, uh, the value is like 50% of the loan value. Uh, and yeah. so, you know, this is this is common, right? And so- Well, I'll give you, Tony, I'll give you a good yep. a real world. So I'm, I'm back in San Francisco now yep. uh, for the holidays. And uh, th this is kind of a hilarious uh, a story. But so the office that I used to work in when I lived here was in the old Federal Reserve building in downtown San Francisco. Right. And it was pri privatized years ago. And in January of 2020, um, when I was still working there, the landlord of the building or the, the owner of the building sold literally January of 2020. Think about the timing on that, right? Perfect. And so he timed that perfectly. And now the, the owner a couple months ago, turned the keys back into the bank, you know, just not making any money, can't meet the mortgage, gave the keys back to the bank. I was going to go into the office, but I didn't because the bank is now running the building and the heater blew up and they haven't fixed the heater. So there's no heat in the building. So it's always HVAC <laughs> and stuff like that, that these guys skimp on. Right? Yeah. But, but, but yeah. And that's the, but the, so, so, I mean, it, that's just one example. Now, does that mean that's happening to every building? No, but I'm sure it's not the only one either, right? And uh, and my my colleagues have already said that when their lease is up, and I, I don't know if it's this year or next year, they're not planning to renew it because they're they're mainly working from home anyway, or they're working remotely, and the bank's not doing a great job of you know managing the building while while they have it. So, right. Uh, anyway, I just I just wanted to give that little anecdote. Yeah. No. It's. I mean, th this is what we're seeing, right? And a lot of this has happened because of work from home, and people just aren't you know, filling these buildings to capacity or close to capacity like yeah. they had. Um, Albert, what are you looking at for risks in 24? You've been talking particularly about banks, uh, U.S. banks uh, for a month or two. Like what what are you worried about within U.S. banks and what else are you worried about? Well, a little bit of what Tracy was talking about, the commercial real estate and the loans and whatnot. I think uh, from what I hear, Bank of America is in pretty deep trouble. You know, whether they're insolvent or not is, you know, quite a question that I'm probably gonna have to look at in 2024. Now, do I think they'll fail? No, because Powell likes to bail everybody out. So, you know, but, you know, any kind of rumors or murmurs of uh, Bank of America uh, insolvent would definitely cause the, the market to take notice. Right. So between uh, big banks like B of A, between the regional banks, between commercial real estate, these are probably the things that you guys are looking at. Uh, yeah. And, you know, and as layoffs kick in, you know, loans start defaulting, debt starts going higher, credit card debt goes. I mean, it's just it's it's a sn it snowballs at that point. Well, the other thing is, um, you know, we don't have the perpetual noise every day of inflation is rising. And so we don't have companies can't go out and put a five percent price rise or a 10 percent price rise or whatever, like they were doing in 21 and 22 and even early 23. Right. So. A lot of I think I was looking at um, General Mills. There was something, some announcement from General Mills yesterday, and they were saying, "Hey, we can't change the price by volume anymore because yeah. consumers won't take it." Right? Yeah, so, they, they had that. They had those tailwinds of inflation that that helped earnings, but I don't. That's certainly gone. So, I, earnings right. in the first two quarters of 2024 are going to probably be really bad. Right. And so this brings me to uh, a tweet that Brent that you sent out earlier. You said one thing to remember uh, is you don't need a flood of new sellers or buyers for the stock prices to begin to fall or rise. 
you just need an absence of new buyers or sellers to show up, right? And so, you know, whether that's, you know, uh, products for um, uh, General Mills or whether that's equities, you know, if buyers don't show up because of these risks or because we're not getting this perpetual noise that we need to be afraid of inflation, we could see things change pretty quickly, right? Yeah, and and again, that this is why when markets get to an extreme, whether a high, extreme high or an extreme low, that's why they typically reverse, right? Um, because markets don't move in a straight line. Like I actually believe that we're going to see equity, much higher equity prices or in the years ahead. But I don't think that we're going straight higher from here because markets, you know, pendulum swing. And it's when you get to clear to one side, that's what kind of provides the energy to then swing it back the other way. And, you know, at the end of October, uh, you know, on one, we do a weekly show with, with my friend John, and we were talking about how sentiment had gotten pretty low. And it wouldn't, and, and it wasn't totally low, but it was it was close. It, it wasn't extreme, but it was getting pretty close to extreme negative. And we said it wouldn't surprise us if the market bounced a few weeks coming out of the Fed meeting because you know tip markets don't go in a straight line. Now, since then, and so we got the two weeks, which I was expecting. I was not expecting the subsequent three or four weeks that that, that we have now got. But now markets are up and until yesterday, everything kind of switched yesterday, and we'll see we'll see what happens over the next week, but. You know, markets had gotten more extreme to the upside than they were to the downside uh, as far as sentiment and, and relative strength and all these different ways to measure where you're at on the, the you know, the, the positive or negative had gotten even more positive than they were negative back in October. Hmm. And so, you know, to, to, to the, the speed with which things move now, that's something else that's a little different. Over the last four years, the speed with which we swing from positives and negatives, I think, has increased dramatically uh, from where we were 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And, and everything kind of moves in unison, right? I mean, it used to be that you'd have a sell off and maybe you'd stay down for two or three months and then it might take six months to to build all that back up. But now, you, I mean, you get huge 10 percent swings. Um, you know, and I mean, it's not that common to have 10% months in equities. It happens. Um, it either, but typically though, it typically happens in big bear markets because you're, you're rallying from oversold levels. Um, so, you know, I, I just feel like the, the swings that we've had over the last four years, if you go back and look at the charts, you know, they're just like big V's and W's. They're not, there's not a lot of U's in there. There's not a lot of N's and U's. It's, 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 and I think that's the world we live in because again, we've gotten to kind of this, the super debt cycle where the debts are so big that if the central banks and the monetary authorities and the governments don't react quickly, you're going to get some very, very bad things happen. And so, you know, I don't, I don't know if that helps move the conversation at all, but I, I just think that that's again, where we're different now than we were maybe 20 years ago. We're, oh, yeah, seeing that, we're seeing that in everything, even like oil. I've been watching oil a lot lately. So yeah, great. perfect example. Perfect I'm example. like, how are we having 5% moves on day-to-day -day basis? This is crazy, you know? Great. Albert, that is a perfect segue to move to Tracy. Um, <laughs> Tracy, let's talk about crude quality um, and shale. I saw some stories earlier this week about how Texas is exporting a bunch of shale this month uh, for tax reasons or whatever. And you said it's kind of boring, which is fine. But it's it's interesting to see those levels. 
I'm curious about shale and the quality of crude that we can get or that we're getting from shale. Um, on the screen, we've got an exchange between you and Ralph, who comes on the show pretty regularly uh, on crude quality and gassy wells and this sort of thing. Can you talk to us about that and why it's happening and why it's important? Yeah, absolutely. So when we're talking about <clears throat> U.S. shale right now, right, and we're seeing all these rig declines, but we're seeing U.S. shale uh, volumes increase because of better technology and whatnot that, you know, I won't go into the minutia of how they're drilling these wells. But what happens is when you do that, yeah, you're producing more, but what is happening is that what you are getting out of these wells is gassier and gassier. And what I mean by that is that you're producing more natural gas liquids, which is technically not oil. Those are things like natural gas, propane, um, and other uh, things that you can use for chemicals, but you can't use that as an oil substitute. And so over time, what is happening, because we're trying to stretch these wells out, these well productivity out, is that what we're getting out of these wells just happens to be lighter and lighter and can't be used for necessarily the same things that oil could be used for. In other words, you can't use it to refine gasoline out of, but you can use it at a chemical company to refine chemicals out of. And so it's totally, you know, it's a different kind of makeup of what these wells are producing. And as they try to stretch this, we're getting more and more of this type of product. Okay, so why does that matter? Like how much of what comes out of a well is used for gasoline versus other chemical products? I mean, that's a very loaded question because it depends on, you know, is it oil sands? Is it, you know, U.S. shale? Is it deep water? You know, so that, that's totally going to matter because they're totally different uh, crew quality. But what that matters is that when we're looking at these numbers, yeah, you know, shale is, at, you know, 13 million barrels a day plus right now. So everybody's like, oh, shale is back. They're producing more than ever there. But, but again, it's not actual product that you can use for traditional oil producing products and others i mean it's great for it's great for the chemical industry because that means they can buy more and it's cheap so right. you know it's so, great for that industry i just want to go back you said if if we see that, say, Texas is producing 13 million barrels a day, that those barrels are not necessarily, it's not necessarily oil. Correct. It's, they count NGLs, which are natural mm -hmm. gas liquids, into the entire crude production. And this is what some people had a problem with uh, EIA and how they were reporting it. And so they made a little bit of a change that just came into effect um, this last month that basically they segue out the difference between what is actually an NGL and what is, you know, uh, what is, you know, traditional oil, so to speak, within the weekly reports now. And so you can see that number even just over the last month has grown. Okay. So what does that mean for these upstream companies in terms of profitability? If there's more crude in those barrels, do they make more money? Well, I think trying to be so basic. I just, I no, just no, no. I think what, how you have to look at this is that 
Really, I think it comes down to mergers and acquisitions right now, to mm -hmm. be honest with you. If we look at this, we have a ton of big deals that went on this year. I think there, if you look at the Dallas Fed survey just released yesterday, um, 77% of all of those uh, producers uh, inter surveyed said, yeah, we're going to expect to see more, uh, more M&A. And what's, and you can see this. And if you look at what's the survey of how much do you want to produce, right? You see all these uh, smaller companies are planning to produce as much as they can. All the majors don't want to produce anything and are just looking for acquisitions. So I think that's really the dynamic we're seeing right now is we're having all these smaller to mid companies trying to produce the heck out of these wells. So they look per productful so that they get bought out by okay. the majors. And, and I so, think that's what's happening in the industry as far as production is concerned. I think it all boils down to business right now. Okay. And so why are they pushing to be acquired? Are they largely debt funded as companies? Not necessarily, but the deals that are going down right now are huge and way more than you're making if you're if you're a small company that's basically just producing NGLs at this point. Right. <laughs> right. And so if you make your wells look more productive, you get these billion dollar or, you know, billion dollar deals going on. Right. right. Um, and that's very attractive to you. Okay, and the, the, and the major, the, ma ahead, Brent, the majors are the, no, sorry, sorry to interrupt. But the Go majors ahead. are buying them; they're basically buying new revenue, right? I mean, correct, because they're not growing themselves, so that's why. They, okay, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Okay. Great. Okay, um, that's good. Thank you for that. I I think it's a lot more complicated than I'm used to seeing. I'm not an energy expert like you are, and sorry for the dumb questions, but I just need to. Make no sure dumb questions. Can I can I ask a question? Can yeah. I ask a question related to that? Is is there a? I mean, I'm sure there is somewhere. Or, or if you, are you familiar with estimates of how long these shale companies can pump at this, you know, magnitude? Is it two years? Is it three years? Is it seven years? Well, you know, I mean, those estimates used to be a lot shorter, but with new technology. Yeah. They're kind of pushing that. It's kind of like, you know, energy, like, you know, uh, yeah. what is it? Gasoline efficiency, <laughs> right? We're just pushing yeah. out the miles. But you have to realize most of the tier one acreage is gone. We yeah. don't have, a, you know, we don't have a new auction after yesterday for till after 2025 because that's gone. So, you know, as far as federal lands are concerned. And so basically they're pushing, you know, it's the pedal to the metal right now. It's like, let's get out yeah. everything when we can. How long that can last, I don't really, I can't tell you for sure, but I can say that you know, it's not forever. <laughs> I mean, we're, but in, we're, in general, in general, it's lasted longer than a lot of people expected. Is, is that right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay. And that's because of a lot of the new technologies that have yep. come within the industry as well. So you have to factor that sort of technology in when you're looking at these wells, you know, five years ago, we probably wouldn't have been where we are, you know, today. Had it not been for, yeah. we probably would have already seen a decline, in other words. Um, and Tracy, you know, in the state of Texas, where I live, um, there really isn't much federal land. It's almost all private. There's there's a small amount of federal land. So when you talk about the federal auctions, how much does that impact um, a place like Texas, where there's a lot of fracking? 
Uh, well, it, you know, it, it it doesn't necessarily. I mean, most of you, your federal auctions are going to be in uh, New Mexico, you know, Wyoming, Colorado, Dakotas, Colorado, Gulf of Mexico, offshore. And, you know, okay. that's where your most of your federal federal lands are coming okay. from. Very good. Okay, thanks for that. Hugely informative. Thank you so much for that. Let's move on to geopolitics, uh, Albert. Okay, everyone's boring. Aware. Sorry, <laughs> boring, boring <laughs> geopolitics. No, yeah. no, 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 not at all. Nothing, nothing, nothing going on there at all. There's nothing going <laughs> on. Uh, everyone's a Red Sea uh, expert this week, of course. Houthis fired rockets at vessels. You guys know the story. And now the U.S. has a kind of a coalition that will protect ships in the area, supposedly. So several shipping companies, particularly Europeans, have opted to go around the Horn of Africa instead of transiting through the Red Sea to go through the Suez Canal. So, like, what's going on here? Like, I've heard, you know, some ideas that these this kind of coalition of European uh, vessel owners is really trying to strong arm DOD to do some things they don't want to do, that sort of thing. What's really happening there? And what are the impacts? Well, I mean, the Houthis, because of the Israeli-Gaza conflict, decided to uh, enter the fray and show the world that they're an actual force. I mean, realistically, they're not. They couldn't really hit Israel as much as they were yapping like dogs that they were going to destroy parts of Israel. So they started taking aim at ships that were destined for Israel, right? But they don't really know which ships are going where. I mean, you'd have to be an expert with the... Or just aim at Zim. Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's just, you know, it's one of those things where the Iranians wanted to influence the area and they use the Houthis as a proxy. I mean, it's an age old problem going back 50, 60 years where Yemen has been, you know, a launch pad for communist insurgencies within Saudi Arabia. So it's not, this is nothing new, right? Mm -hmm. The problem is, you know, these ships have insurance uh, requirements, right? And you, once you enter a conflict zone, those insurance coverages evaporate, right? So for the ship owners, one, it's not very safe to try to uh, go through there and God forbid, you know, a ship gets sunk and then you lose everything, right? And your insurance doesn't cover it. You're completely out of business at that point. Uh, realistically, the, the cost of the Suez Canal passage versus the diesel that they're using is pretty much even. Right. Uh, it's just a time factor at that point. Like, I mean, there's, you know, there's 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 issues if you're carrying oil to Rotterdam from the Middle East that, you know, the price can sway significantly in that time frame. So those those issues are uh, to be, you know, to be assessed by the ship owners. Now, I have a fear that the U.S. might get a little bit brave and start, you know, attacking some of the Houthi positions with drones or missile strikes or so on and so forth which would probably affect the price of oil going you know going into the market and the markets would probably sell off you know with you know a new u.s war you know so it was quote unquote but you know i, I don't really give that more than like a 50 60 percent chance but it's still there you know okay certainly there. so the, the Houthis, like their air force is like F-4s made in the 60s or something, right? I mean, it, that, that's, that's a joke. I saw that tweet and I'm just like, they're like, bring it on, America. I mean, we can send some kids with PlayStations hooked up to DJI drones to take those out. I mean, that's a right. joke. Yeah. You know? right. 
So, you know, I remember this clip's been going around for the past day or so where it's uh, George Bush uh, from 2001 or whatever talking about the coalition. And then he says, now watch me, you know, uh, watch Hit my golf drive. drive or something like that. Right. Yeah. And it was like the perfect early 21st century American moment. And so, you know, I, and at that time, a lot of these countries jumped into the coalition, whether they felt forced to or, you know, supported America or whatever. Uh, but the sense I'm getting is that the Europeans, although they have claimed to be part of the coalition, they're not really doing that much. So this is a perfect example of a unipolar world where the the dominant superpower of the United States conducts maritime security globally. Nobody else can do that. Right. And I'm you glad you brought that. this up. Yeah, I'm so just, glad you brought this up. Seychelles, Seychelles jumped on this. I mean, Seychelles are the difference maker in this coalition, right? I mean, they they are going to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is why the U.S. is a reserve currency. This is why we are a unipolar world still, and for the foreseeable future, there is nobody else that can send ships and rockets and helicopters and manpower globally to choke points that trade flows through. This is the United States' world, and we're seeing it right now. Yeah, but the PLA has thousands of ships, 94% of which are small fishing boats, right? I mean... Oh, yeah. That, that, uh, you know, ton, tonnage matters at some point, right? right? When, whenever right. you talk to a real military expert, tonnage matters, right? When right. you have aircraft, when you have 21 aircraft carriers versus, you know... 5,000 fishing boats, right. they're not going to, they're not going to matter much. Right. Well, I think, I think this, this is, this is kind of important, I think, for people to think about, because, you know, I obviously get in a lot of these debates regarding the, the U.S. hegemony and still a unipolar power and the U.S. dollar. And I'll often get the comment that, you know, aircraft carriers and Navy forces are no longer important due to, you know, hypersonic missiles and all this yeah. you know, nonsense. But here's the thing is, Number one, I don't believe that that's true, but let's just pretend that it is. Let's first let's just give those people who say that the, the, the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that is true in some kind of a large war scenario. They're sitting ducks. Well, there's a lot of stuff that goes on that's not a large war scenario. And the fact is, is that the U.S. Navy for several decades has kept the shipping lines open from things like the Houthis. Remember 10 years ago, you know, Captain Phillips and the Ethiopian you know, pirates. That has helped keep prices down for everyone, not just for the United States. Now, does it benefit the United States? It absolutely benefits the United States. They're not altruistic in this, but it helps the rest of the world, too. And if the U.S. was not the hegemon and was not doing this, prices would be higher everywhere. Insurance rates would be higher everywhere. The lead time to get shipments from around the world would be much longer. And so I th I think that's one. And insurance would be higher, right? Insurance would be dramatic, dra dramatically higher. And so you know, and so that that has inflationary effects, right? And so you know, this whole thing that that, that, that Albert's talking about with with the with the Red Sea, this has the potential to keep rates higher for longer with the Fed. You know, this is how potentially Fed rate cuts might not happen as quickly as as are forecasted, or even if the Fed cuts do come, may not have as significant an impact on uh, the markets because of what's going on. In other words, they may have to be cutting in order to protect against deflationary forces as a result of markets selling off because oil spiking and there's you know more geopolitical conflict 
in, in the Red Sea and the greater Middle East. And so th this is just another part of what, what I was saying earlier is that, you know, markets are priced to perfection based on monetary policy, but there's a lot more going on than just monetary policy. And, uh, you know, th there's so many different ways that this can go wrong. It doesn't mean it will go wrong. It just means, I think, you know, markets move on expectations and they have fully, they are now fully expecting, the markets are fully expecting several cuts. And if those several cuts don't show up, markets are not going to be at the same levels they are right now. Yep. You know, they've, been, they've been wrong for two years on this pivot, pause, cuts, yeah. so on yeah. and so forth. Yeah. So I have no no trust on these like five, six, no. you know, Fed cut yeah. uh, stories out there. 275 yeah. basis points. Yeah, yeah, okay, sure. I agree. Yeah. Okay. okay, so so guys, I want to I want to talk more broadly about geopolitical risk. Okay, because I, I don't know that a lot of people understand when the 2008 financial crisis hit, investment banks just gutted their geopolitical risk desks, right? And so since then, I don't know of really any major banks that have maybe credible is too strong of a word, but credible geopolitical risk analysis. So a lot of that's been outsourced to relatively small firms, right? Am I wrong on this? I, I just, I don't feel like we're, we really get a lot of credible geopolitical risk analysis from the banks, from the guys who should be able to price risk. Is that, am, am I off there? They don't. I mean, Goldman Sachs has a new geopolitical division. Uh, I, I really haven't talked to them or seen what they've written, but just going on from previous interactions, with the financial industry and geopolitical analysis, it's been truly awful. You know, they right. just don't, you know, it, it, it stems from them being so polar opposite where uh, finance guys absolutely do not believe that geopolitics makes a difference up until about, you know, six months ago. And now they're flipping because they've gotten blown out in their portfolios and they have to blame something and it's geopolitical. So now they're all, you know, going towards the geopolitical uh, analysis, but you know, there's still, they're, they're not good. Still right. not good. Well, not only that, when, when they, when they, when they do exist, you got to remember that the, the investment banks that put out research and the big commercial banks, that, I mean, they're basically sales pieces. I mean, they, 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 it's very hard for an analyst at a major firm to come out and say something very negative. It's not impossible, but it's not easy. And and even when when they do try to put out something negative, you know, their 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 higher ups will say, "Hey, can you smooth this out a little bit? Sure. Can you say this a little bit softer?" Because at the end of the day, they want people invested, they want people buying things, they don't want people to hunker down and do nothing, right? And so I, I tend to agree with your point, Tony. They don't really have these groups to begin with, but even when they do, you're not going to get the same kind of unvarnished you know, truth that you would at, at, at perhaps an independent uh, um, right. geopolitical firm. And so we've got small geopolitical firms largely based in New York or D.C. or London. I used to be with one of them. Uh, and these are not people who have field experience, none. And so they're basically it's secondary research. They're largely reading. And I just want to make sure that our viewers understand this. They're largely reading English language publications in these countries to come up with their assessments. 
Okay, so they don't really know what's going on there. It's it's filtered through English language, whether it's Reuters or some local newspaper or something like that. Right. That's, so that's really what geopolitical risk is today with the geopolitical risk firms that, you know, that can come up. We don't need to name names, but the ones that come off your tip of your tongue. Or even yeah. worse, you know, the uh, big think tanks. In Sorry. I said, or even worse, the big think tanks in the U.S. And I'll just oh my gosh. that and I won't name names. Well, no, I mean, look, the, the big think tanks in the U.S., many, you know, there are not a small number of their leadership who they're are government boards of Chinese well. companies. They're, okay? just, on they're, they're just so bad, Tony. I just had a discussion this morning with a finance guy in a firm up in New York, and he's furiously texting me like because i think they're trying to make a bond position they're like like oh lavrov's uh, plane landed in the united states the russian diplomat you know the foreign minister the war is over in ukraine and i'm like what the hell are you talking about man like right. like that's most likely a a a, a taxi ride for the diplomats to go back for the holidays to yeah. russia what is, like that's not that's not some bond move you're completely mispricing everything and right making assumptions where you don't have expertise on doing and they do that often and that's why they're so bad right now i want to bring this back to crude tracy if if we have geopolitical risk rising in the middle east why aren't we seeing that in crude prices right now well first of all this is this whole episode is a shipping move and i've reiterated that over and over and over again in Twitter because everybody said, why isn't oil moving? Because there's no risk to oil. Unless you mm -hmm. see the Houthis lobbing missiles at Aramco again, there's no risk to oil. Production is fine in the Middle East. There's right. Production is not interrupted. So this is not an oil issue. Now, if you want to talk shipping and you want to talk, yes, now we have a shipping issue with not only containers, but also shipping with, you know, with the tanker and in oil and oil products market as well as, you know, they're being diverted around Africa instead, you know, and in fact, you know, we're seeing, you know, tankers have been having to be diverted from Panama Canal for, you know, months but now because of the things that are happening. So it's a shipping issue. And so that you're sh seeing shipping, you know, you're seeing shipping rates increase and that you're seeing, you know, a bounce in the container and the tanker markets. Right this now, goes back, this, goes back, this goes back to what Brent was saying, though, with these outsized market moves. And this is what we've been seeing is like any kind of headline, geopolitical, economic, so on and so forth, gets so blown out of proportion. Right. And Tracy's right. This Houthi thing is not a risk to oil. This is ridiculous. You know, they're not going to start blowing up Iranian and Russian ships and Chinese ships. You know, the Houthis rely on those people. You know, so this is it's just these outsized, outsized moves based on wacky headlines is here to stay. And it's well, definitely oil. To my earlier point, people don't know how to price this risk because geopolitical yeah. risk analysis is so bad. People don't know how to price risk. So you have all of this volatility around these items. Either they underprice and dismiss it or they overprice it because people are sitting in suburban New Jersey or whatever. They have never been to the region. They have no idea what's going on. And so they mm -hmm. overreact. L let's just, I know we need to wrap this up, but let let's just get into real nitty gritty on uh, the Middle East for a minute, Albert, on this Yemen issue. Mm -hmm. So the Houthis, their allies are Iran, uh, Qatar and really Oman, right? I mean, Qatar and Oman are kind of Iranian allies. Is that yeah? But the Russian, the the well, yes, 
for the most part, but they've also had links, long-standing links with the Chinese and uh, and the Russians. I mean, like I've even tweeted out that the Chinese have barges sitting offshore that sells arms to the Houthis, and right. nobody says anything about it. You know, right? Okay, and then the the kind of sitting on the other side of that is really the Saudis and the Emiratis, right? Just and in the, terms of Middle East dynamics, right? Yeah, and the Israelis, yes. And the Israelis, okay. Yeah. But I, I doubt the Emiratis and the, and the Saudis would really say that Israel is their ally. Do they? I mean, they don't really say that out loud, do they? No, but it's it's, it's common knowledge. I mean, the, the, the Saudis, I mean, the Saudis and the Israelis have been defense partners for 30, 40 years. This is nothing right. new. Right. Yeah. And so I think on one side of that, we have kind of chaos, right? Iran and, you know, mm -hmm. other stuff. And then we have kind of order on one side, which is Saudi and UAE, very orderly societies, Israel, very orderly. So the one I can't figure out, Albert, is Qatar, okay? Because very orderly place. There's a massive U.S. base in Qatar. So why are they allied with Iran? They're not just just allied with Iran, but they're allied with uh, Turkey. On top of that, the little troika there sitting okay. in the Middle East is because you know they they see the Saudis as a threat to their monarchy, right? So they need to uh, they need to counterbalance that with the Iranians, the same way that the Indians counterbalance China with Russia, and that's that's just the basic layman's terms of reason of why they're aligned with the Iranians. They need to okay. counterbalance. So it's just balancing out. It's not yeah, it's course. not that the countries are super empathetic to Iran. They're just worried about Saudi. So they're enemy, my enemy, that sort of thing. Or, yeah, exactly. That and the Iranians are also right across the strait there. I mean, it's not right. that far away. It's just don't throw right. away. And their gas fields in the in the water are you know, they, they border right. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Okay, very good. Um, guys, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for this. We've got a lot to think about going into 2024. Have great holidays and uh, have a great week ahead and see you in the new year. Thank you very much. Happy holidays. Thanks, everybody. Happy holidays.